Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, James Mangold takes us behind the scenes of his new biographical drama, Ford vs. Ferrari. The film follows American car designer Carol Shelby and driver Ken Miles, who battled corporate interference, the laws of physics, and their own personal demons to build a revolutionary race car for Ford and challenge Ferrari at the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 1966. In addition to Ford vs. Ferrari, Mr. Mangold's directorial credits include the feature films Logan, The Wolverine, 310 to Yuma, Walk the Line, Kate and Leopold, and Girl Interrupted, and the pilots for the series Vegas and Men in Trees. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Mangold spoke with director Doug Lyman about filming Ford vs. Ferrari. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. That's James. Doug. That's Doug. <laughs> I'd love to take credit for this movie, but uh, <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's it's really a extraordinary accomplishment. The, thank you. Uh, the you know how gripping the the action is and how strong the emotion is. Um, In many ways, that was. I mean, the I'm not a motorsports guy, you know, so my attraction to the to the story when I first kind of encountered it into the script was not. Um, like I got to make a race car movie as much as the idea. I mean, I guess the puzzle you and I face a lot in what we do is how do we make intelligent, larger scale movies um, that are aimed at someone other than 13 year olds. Right. So you're always looking for something that is grabbing you on the basis of character, but also has some kind of muscularity because we have to do, do compete with television. We have to get you, we have to get grownups actually to be one of the four movies they leave their home to see a year. So there has to be some aspect of it that is dynamic, um, but also for me, something that is, uh, interesting or else I just can't sustain, um, my own interest over the years I'm going to be working on. So, so what was it? Cause this is a, a script, uh, was written by my friends, uh, John Henry Butterworth and Jez Butterworth. What was it in the script that, uh, that drew you to the story? The, um, I mean, like what, what was the moment in the script where you're like, oh, this is why I got to make this movie? I loved reading it when I first read it. it. It was clearly I could see why it hadn't gotten made, which is it, it kind of seemed uncorralled. It seemed to be, I mean, one of the things that Jez and John Henry and I worked on once I came on was trying, the reason the movie hadn't been made and been banging around for a decade and a half was essentially that it, no one could justify spending in excess of $100 million on an adult-oriented movie, you know, that really didn't seem to have an angle or a pre-sale character per se. Um, and, um, so what Jez, I, what I loved, it's a good question is, is I love the world. I loved, you know, what I'm always looking for, what it has a language its own of its own. You know, I'm a, like in, in a weird way, I believe people say like, they'll talk about directors sometimes and they'll go, Oh, he's a world builder or she's a world builder. You know, like we can make a sci-fi movie or I think every movie is a world building effort, meaning every movie you want to have a language and a world and a map and a unique set of locations. It's not that one kind of world 
is unique and special and regular world movies are just a bunch of overs in living rooms. And so the, the, for me that it had its own language, that it had a, a kind of a vernacular, the visuals seemed beautiful, seemed to capture a time, but what grabbed me were these characters. Um, the way that I related to them as a filmmaker, you know, the battle to get a car made, the kind of um, is not different than the battle to get a movie made, but also what I was looking for and what I was terrified as I was reading their draft, because I didn't know the true life story, was I was terrified it was just going to be a simple they win and 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 that that the story unwound the way it did, that Ken ends up slowing down and tying and then losing and then dying a month later and then the way it unwound was profoundly interesting to me as a challenge to try to work my way toward yeah actually um to prepare for this i i reached out to uh because we we have people we've worked with in common uh, the, the screenwriters i've worked with and obviously matt damon um so i asked for a few questions to ask you from which guys um, from, from Matt and Jez and John Henry. And, uh, one of the questions, uh, cause you talked about the ending was, uh, that Jez and John Henry feel like the best scene in the film, uh, was written by you. And meanwhile, they're getting the credit as the screenwriters, uh, which is the last scene of the movie. Um, and, uh, how did the film sort of originally end and what was the, um, process as a as a filmmaker to sort of hone in on that. Can you just talk about how you arrived at that ending? Well, what I felt among many, there were many things that Jez and John Henry and I worked on, and one of them was this idea that I was chasing that uh, I, I don't, I'm trying to put my finger on it. I felt that the if it's a character film, that it doesn't end with the race because the race doesn't determine their character arcs per se in, in, in neither case. That's so I worked very carefully with them on how to construct what was a kind of laying pipe going in, starting with, with, with Carol Shelby's, uh, uh, onset of heart disease where he has to stop giving you a taste of Le Mans and then stopping. But what I was after in the end was a kind of, I felt that I got too attached to Ken's son and his uh, wife and the world of Shelby American to just end at a race and then tell you that either tell you or let you discover that Ken died a month later or, but also I felt like neither what was so interesting to me uh, for Matt's character and with what I felt was still missing from the script was some sense like it's so simple, but for me, the two characters were really simply Carol's compensation for his heart disease was to become a kind of adrenaline junkie salesman. He became like a kind of a nonstop salesperson and he was brilliant at it. But then if that's his compensation in act one, what is his, what is his turn in the end of the movie? And, um, and that was the puzzle that I still th thought that we hadn't answered yet in the script I had read. And similarly, although it was more, the pipe was more laid there, Ken is a guy, Christian's character is a guy who never compromises, is kind of a perfectionist. Uh, uh, well, then it's clear what that could be, that moment he slows down, which is actually in its own way, even though it's a giving up of the race, it's actually an expansion of his character in that moment, meaning he's doing something he had never ever done before, which was layoff. 
um, that was beyond his capability in that. And so this was my theory of both characters. And the, a lot of the research that Jez and John Henry told me about, even with Carol, and a lot of the written research told me that Carol Shelby regretted telling Ken Miles to slow down all his life. And that it seemed to me then there needed to be some kind of denouement where, where, where Carol was dealing with the fact that he couldn't talk his way around this. I mean, it's literally something we wrote in the end. I, I mean, it's very kind of them to say I wrote. But the um, the I mean, I did that last scene was was an effort to try and nail something that we hadn't quite gotten. And the um, but for me, it was just strictly the idea that Matt spent the whole movie smoothing his way out of problems. And in this last scene with a boy, it just be with with Ken's boy, it just becomes a scene in which just being present is all that's required and he should shut up and that, and that it's, and that's what that scene directly before that I scratched out with, with, you know, are you telling me I'm some kind of salesman? You tell me I'm, I'm like my magic words, meaning it's all trying to set up this idea that Carol essentially had been gliding through life on a kind of ability to dance. And that for once in the movie, he was going to have to be still. And that was that thing. It was, it was that indescribable kind of thing that I was chasing that I didn't know what it was. And sometimes I try to have, I have to try to scratch it out myself because I don't know what it is until I've found it kind of painting thing as opposed to a plotty thing. And this is a, a, a world that is, is not a, a world that you were drawn to before reading the script. It's you're not, you weren't like a race car fan. In fact, I'm, I'm the opposite. I love sports, but I, I found, uh, Did you I, ever I, been to a car race. I, I did a commercial for some NASCAR. I don't remember what it was for something, um, years ago where we went to North Carolina, went to all these tracks, but it has no, I mean, it's so no, I mean, there's, there's uh, the culture so around the, it. What was it, the process well, of, I find of car learning about it? So you could then share it with us. Uh, well, it was it was second guessing myself. I mean, first of all, the NASCAR culture is kind of gross to me. So there was just a level where where it's become in America. But there's something fascinating to me. If you go back, the the, the kind of the just the cars covered with stickers and people screaming and just the music and the whole that's not interesting to me. And when I tune it in, I do, the race itself doesn't interest me because of and this led me to thinking about how to cover the movie the races don't interest me because i don't know who's why is the yellow car ahead of the blue car and why is the red one pulling into the pit and why is the blue one now getting ahead of the yellow one and everyone's just sitting speculating in a sense it's a sport where you're locked out of everything interesting because it's buried beneath a helmet and then inside a car so that all the secrets of what's going on are inside that vehicle and you're completely you're not privy to any of the juicy stuff. So that gave me, in a sense, my answer of how to shoot it, however obvious it is, which is just to get to follow the characters into the race, to be with every decision, to understand why they're downshifting or pulling into the pit, to kind of let you live moment to moment in the tactical. Of so what did it is. you, I, I mean, I actually am not also a, a car, car race person. I've I love been, cars. I've been to one NASCAR yeah. race, but yeah. my life, but so I don't even know, does, does Le Mans still go on? Le Mans is still there, but looks nothing like this. So we, we were, although I was, I, I did fall in love with the look of so this. So did you period. actually go to a Le Mans race? We went, to, there was none I could go. There's only one day a year it is. Yeah. And the, by the time we knew we were going, the one had passed and the next one would be while we were shooting. So the, the, um, but we did go to Le Mans and we toured the track and, um, and of course the track, 
looks again seeing a current Le Mans race would be nothing like seeing what was then it is now a full-blown manicured track with graded roads and rails and it looks more like the Meadowlands than it does um, uh, the the grandstand we have here. All the charm is essentially gone, or as it is in all places, overrun with scale. Um, and did you? F- the town is still beautiful. In uh, this one, because I don't want to rat anyone out uh, again from from one of Resources. our mutual friends. Uh, the question was uh, that they found themselves working on the film, occasionally driving their own car a little bit too hot. And did you ever find yourself uh, maybe pushing your own car as you were? It makes you think about driving. I mean, the, 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 I think the one thing that's true for all of us is that the car is an incredible metaphor in our lives, um, a really powerful metaphor, certainly in cinema it has been, but for all of us. And yes, I mean, it doesn't have me driving crazy, but it has me thinking about the road more. I'm much more aware of, of, um, I got captured making the film by the beauty of the philosophies of these guys and how they saw the car as an extension of themselves or a mask or a kind of, and, and, and I responded to the gear the way I do connect to gear on our doing what we do, you know, the, the gear making films, the gear cameras and cranes and dolly track and lenses and anamorphic versus da 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 and digital. All that becomes in that gear. I saw, oh, that's what they're in love with is there because it suddenly became less about, you know, um, uh, the kind of NASCAR idea of racing I had and more about something much more beautiful and seeing someone like Enzo, for instance, as such a, interesting figure in relation to what we do which is that i saw like ferrari was like zoetrope it was like like Fran- like francis like it was like pursuing perfection or personal vision and going bankrupt but not caring until you have to find new financing and then ford was more like you know studios we know which are making a product for people and um and want to be cool, want some of the Ferrari cool. Um, and, um, and that is that a kind of tension between the company and the corporate side that is kind of playing it by the numbers and the person who's playing it, um, by romance, all that is really deeply fascinating to me. I hope to someone else when they watch it. Yeah. And um, I don't want to hog all the questions. So, uh, if there are questions in the audience and then I'll, I'll repeat it for, for everybody. So the question is, you know, the, the obvious thing might have been to make Ferrari the villains, but they were more humanized um, in the film. And, and what was the process uh, behind that? Uh, there's two things I'd say. One is I, I think credit has to get, go to Jez and John Henry, first of all, that they didn't write it that way to begin with. At least I didn't see it that way. But also, you know, part of the reason I like working with them and as a writer myself, I'd say I'm pretty – strict in my own creative sphere about not letting anyone use the word villain or bad guy. Um, and cause I think it screws everyone up making the movie. Um, uh, as if there is a person who wakes up and contemplates what evil they can do every day, you know, that the, which is what the name implies, like kind of just, uh, that, that no matter, at least for the purpose of me making a movie, no matter what, godforsaken soul you would imagine me making a movie about i would be trying to find the way that they actually think whether it's through an incredible pretzel of psychology 
that they're doing good for the world or themselves or somebody. And that, so the first thing is that I examine and read everybody through their own personal sense of purpose and, um, and and one of the easy exercises you can make as a screenwriter is you could reconstitute a story. Like I could make uh, Josh uh, Josh Lucas's character into a kind of heroic character with a couple quick changes of like a he's trying to hold on to his job, which is perilous with Ford, and he's their company's failing, and the whole thing will go down, and he's got a troubled marriage, and a, I could create a whole situation. And then Ken Miles is his whole narcissist who is threatens this meaning it's all where you put the camera and where you where you write it so that i really so having said all that i love ferrari like i would prefer his cars even to a gt40 so and i'm the romantic in me loves what he's about which is in a sense uh irrational idealism right so if i could just ask a follow-up to that because that's such a fascinating answer um, if you were doing a film, not Ford versus Ferrari, but Trump versus Biden or Bloomberg or Warren or pick yours, where would you be putting the camera to humanize Trump? It would be, wouldn't it be easy? I mean, wouldn't it be easy? Really? It's like man wakes up obese, corpulent, uh, can't let anyone see that there's only three strands of head on his, hair on his head, rushes to the bathroom with spray and shit has to kind of, you can't even be seen by, by, uh, by, by the help before he's done a certain amount of strapping and gluing together. The level of fear and anxiety before he can even become public is so great. And he's already been greeted by headlines and news that mock him that, that no, I, so that you, I would deal with a kind of terrified, frightened, troubled king who is, uh, completely unworthy, completely overwhelmed and, and, and terrified of exposure on some, I mean, you could, that would, to me, that's the only interesting story. The other story is just this, this, the, it's the only one that makes sense to me in this world, to be honest. Like I, if I try and make sense of this any other way, I would, I wouldn't have any other way to understand it other than to try not to have pity on him, but it's the difference. Understanding him isn't saying I absolve him or it's that I actually go, because I think the thing that, that hurts us as a culture in movies and otherwise is when we say someone's bad, we divorce ourselves from our culpability and how they came to be. And we divorce ourselves from our culpability in, in, in our own lives because it's like, oh, I was bad. I did that because I was bad. No, you did it because you were frightened of this or because you were weak. Or we, we take our mistakes and we turn them into kind of simple um, cartons. Anyway, it's a very interesting topic. But in drama, it's really fruitless um, to, um, to do it otherwise in my mind. Question? I'm trying to figure out how to quickly summarize that question. It's uh, how did we put it all together without having massive reshoots or how, how did we? Because you don't have a chance to do it again because of the scale of a movie like this, that it's you got to make these decisions and trust in them. It's, so in a project, this a project this large, how do you how do you keep your perspective and make sure that you're, uh, it's you're... a really good question. And one, I mean, essentially, it's the struggle of I'm sure it's a struggle for you as well. It's a struggle of our lives, ma managing large things and trying to express yourself and at the same time you're managing something that is um a multi-headed hydra of activity and many people all with their own feelings and contributions to make um the simple thing i'd say is 
is to make sure you're enjoying yourself and, and, and that you have a chance for all the preparation that obviously you have to do to make a movie like this, storyboarding, planning, matchbox cars on maps, previs, whatever, that you have the f- mental and physical space to change your mind and revise. I can only tell you that on my second movie, Copland, I was shooting in New Jersey out here um, uh, 20 years ago. And in the first week of production, I looked at uh, my dailies and I was coming home from dailies and I looked at, they gave me these uh, contact sheets for what the stills guy had shot that week on the set. And I looked at what the stills guy was getting on my shoot and I thought it looked better than what I was shooting. And I realized it was because I was doing what I planned and I wasn't watching what was there. And that the danger in the larger movies, and I think what we see often in larger movies, is kind of previs shot. It's just, uh, um, you can, I always can tell because previs is always never stops with the arm. Like the guys in previs little labs can just never stop with, and we'll make it in one. And why make a cut? Because we're in previs. Wee! And so the, 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 um, to me, it's being open to what is happening in front of you with your eyes like I was when I was 12 or 13 with a Super 8 camera and that you don't get – and that's another thing about that is surrounding yourself with good people. Like I've really realized over the years that there could be qualified people who are who have some kind of toxic energy who just close the envelope for you of the ability to think – and that can't, you can't have them around no matter what scale it is, you know, that, that, that little bit of space where you can kind of go, let's try this on the day and that the crew can manage that. In fact, cause it's, or that I see or hear something from my actors or my DP or someone comes up with something else that just reveals the scene and you have to take advantage of that. Is that at all answer your question? Good. Right there. So the question is, was there like a racing boot camp at the beginning for Matt and Christian to to learn how to drive a race car, basically? Uh, not for Matt, who didn't really do much driving in the movie other than the one uh, the one scene with Henry Ford in the opening. But the um, but for Christian, he took a he took a, a few days and went to Arizona and actually raced with Bob Bondurant on his, on a track, I believe, in Arizona. And but both of them are pretty experienced drivers in movies and have done a load of that kind of stuff and um and so they and they also didn't do and be the first to admit a lot of the driving meaning that the they're in the cars moving at high speed and they'll pull in and pull out and but they have families and we want to they want to go home to them and um, um but we didn't do a lot of green screen either what we did predominantly was was put them in in cars that were driven by surrogate drivers our Stunt team called it the biscuit, but it was this kind of device where either the driver was on the roof of the car or offset to one of the sides so that, um, and I've used these before on movies and different rigs for motorcycle scenes or whatever, where, you know, if you can't text and drive, you certainly shouldn't be acting and driving and, and you certainly shouldn't be acting and driving at uh, over a hundred miles an hour. Yeah. So the arc of the driving sequences that, you know, play out like a sporting event where you're, you kind of know when you're losing and you're winning, was that all mapped out or did you find that um it was pretty i mean pretty mapped out i mean either in the writing or in the boarding or the planning of it all i mean there's a lot our editors found different rhythms and you know it's it's i always feel like 
there's always this this kind of I'm never satisfied with either answer to this question, which is to say uh, we knew it all in advance or we discovered it all on the fly because the answer is always both. Um, the answer – I always try – my own process is I try and uh, kin it to collecting seashells. I know the Legos or Legos. I know the Legos I need for this scene. I know usually the ways I'm going to tr- – I had a great teacher at Columbia University many years ago, Stefan Scharf, who had this thing that he thought the only cut that was interesting in narrative film was the transitional cut. And so he was like, if you don't know anything else, at least plan your transitional cuts. And that, And so usually if I know nothing else, I know – what my outgoing and in, every time I change location or advance time, the outgoing and the incoming shot is planned so that it's a beautiful, in my opinion, or effort to make a beautiful graphic cut. You know, the composition is weighted so it will, the, the cut across to the next scene will look good, will feel good, um, will have a kind of um, push forward narratively. But within the bits, I don't know every time I'm cutting to the speedometer or the gear pedal or because some of that depends on what Christian does or the way the light falls in the cars as one is overtaking another on the track, etc. cetera. Um, but w- what you try and do or avoid at least is what I think it's some folks in for me in trouble making action movies is just the hose it down. Like the, the, that where I, where I felt like I've gotten in trouble when I'm overwhelmed is you just kind of just shoot a bunch of shit and we'll figure it out later kind of thing is dangerous. I mean, it, it's essentially to me, uh, an abdication of, fi- of knowing what your scene's about in the moment and figuring it out later, which for some may be an excellent process. For me, I feel awful if I've done that. I feel like the only thing I should know, I don't have to know where every shot is going or how I'm using it, but I should know what the scene's about. And if I know what the scene's about, then I should know where the camera should go to cover the very thing that it's about. So that the, and it's, uh, and that should, um, I don't use, I don't carry many cameras on the show. Like I, uh, even a second camera to me is sometimes traumatic. Um, so, um, uh, that's for me, the one at a time is actually more efficient. Um, if that answers any question as well. That's amazing. I didn't have your, uh, film school teacher, but, uh, when I was doing my uh, first film, Swingers, the only thing I storyboarded were the, the transition transitional shots, the first and last shot. Because I was like, how do I storyboard what happens during the scene? Because I don't know what's going to happen during the scene. They're going to have to act it and I'll figure it out. But And I, I was like, well, I got a storyboard, but the only thing I could actually intuitively figure out you could storyboard is the last shot of a scene and the first shot of the next scene. It's absolutely. And what the thing Stefan would always say, which I thought was so true was, you know, he felt that narrative film was trapped by continuity. You have to make everything match and the light has to match and the people have to match. And then it's so boring. He was a 90 year old Russian filmmaker, but he thought that the transitional shot was also the most creative because it was the one that defied our normal seeing experiences. We, we cannot in the blink of an eye be home. We cannot in the blink of an eye be 10 years from now so that the magic of cinema is in the cut and the power of that cut and the juxtaposition of it, which is partly why sometimes I get sad about the, the fashion, the, the cut as I, when I teach young filmmakers are just trying to do everything in a oneer, And I'm like, as if the cut were some kind of concession, um, when the cut is one of the most powerful tools we have, I mean, Wonder films are awesome and exciting too, but it's it's just the fashion of kind of feeling that the cut has become something people actually feel as a kind of uh, like a crutch as opposed to a thing of beauty. So the question is uh, Tracy Letts and the casting of, of, of Tracy and 
Well, I, I uh, have always been a fan. I mean, I discovered Tracy, I think, for the first time through Homeland, um, where he plays the CIA as kind of diabolical, conniving CIA. Um, I think a senator who ends up taking over the CIA. I don't remember, but he's great in that show. And I felt like was uh, mesmerizing in that show. And I was like, who is this guy? And um, then became conscious retroactively of him as a writer. And uh, when this role came up, it just seemed like a home run to me. I can't tell you why or how I just felt like I'd be lucky to get him. Um, and, and I was lucky enough to get him. He's a great actor. And, and, uh, I think what fascinated him about this part was the idea again of, of that, that he didn't see himself as a type. He saw himself as a legacy operating under the tremendous burden of inheriting a company and the family name and what are you going to do with it? And sales are declining and, um, and, and also a guy who's only lived in wealth and in a kind of bubble. I mean, I think that's what's so lovely about his work in the scene where Matt takes him for a drive is that Tracy pulls you in, you're, you're laughing at him for a moment. And then you're suddenly, what makes the scene interesting is it doesn't end there. Suddenly he touches you and you realize he's a person and and he has pain and he's lonely and he never gets to ride in a car and what a, and and then suddenly he's a completely different human being to you you know and um and tracy took that a country mile it was beautiful when he did that no we made those so, up. so the uh the so the I question mean, was how how closely does the film here to uh to the actual events and that's my partner asked it who's a reporter for cbs so i see the, but those there's details. The, <laughs> the um the reality of the answer is that all our research and our researchers told us they do stuff like that to each other all the time in the pits and carol was always screwing with the opposition and then i asked our researchers how would they screw with the opposition and they'd say well we could steal something you could throw a nut or a washer under the thing you could dump a little motor oil into where the car just pulled out when they're not looking you could and all this stuff was standard operating procedure so i i'm being too coy in saying we just made it up, but that it was that he did it at that race at that time. I have no idea. Um, what was the other one? Locking BB in the closet didn't happen, but drag taking Henry Ford for a drive did happen. Did he do it exactly like like Tracy did it? It is reaction. No, but they took him for a drive in the car to to let him know because he was about to cancel them or make another change. And they needed to put him in the car to realize what they had come up with. Most everything in the broad strokes is based on reality. We just have to. Obviously, we're making a motion picture, obviously. Well, thank you for thank the you, Q&A. Doug. Thanks for the film. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for more great Q&As with directors Marielle Heller and Casey Lemons. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 